Well, good morning and welcome uh, on another brisk winter weekend that we have uh, before us. Going through high school, I spent a lot of time water skiing on the Mississippi River. A friend of mine had a, um, his parents owned a, a home, a little cottage on the, lay, or on the river, and they had a ski boat, and right across from them on the Iowa side, there was, a, um, there was a little cove that went back for about a mile. And so even when the weather was not great and it was windy and there was a lot of chop in the, in the main channel, we could find water smooth enough to, to ski on. Uh, on the Iowa side in this, in this cove. And uh, this is back in high school, and we did a lot of things uh, to prove that we were uh, fearless and brave. I now say we did a lot of things confirming that we were clueless about uh, what we should have been doing. So, we, you know, we would challenge each other to ski close enough to shore to grab leaves off the trees, or we'd have contests to see who could throw the biggest splash against this cement pillar that was holding up a bridge, which basically meant that you, you, you stayed on the other side of the boat and then you cut right for that pillar and, and at the last minute you would turn so that you would throw this big rooster tail against the cement. And uh, we were quite impressed with ourselves and uh, it's amazing I'm still alive. But one of the things that we also made sure is that we were always the last people to ski in the fall and the first to ski in the spring which is how one April day we were out uh, water skiing. It was unconscionably cold. The water was frigid. Uh, I don't remember how, but I ended up in the water first, and I just remember saying as soon as I got in, just take up the slack, take up the slack, take up the slack, go, go, as soon as you're ready, go. I was just so, just wanted to get out of the water. And I spent the entire time skiing just trying to, you know, think, if I pull myself in on this rope and they cut the engine, could I just jump into the back of the boat without going back in the water? Well, there were three of us there. The next up was Pat. Pat, it was Pat's parents that lived on the, on the river. And so I'm driving the boat, and we're in this, in this cove, and it's relatively um, small and narrow. And so we, there's another boat, only one other boat out there. It's a, it's a jet boat, and we can see that there's two young couples in this uh, boat. They're having a picnic or something. They're on a date. And uh, so one time, Pat motions for me to go a little bit closer to the boat. I, I don't really know what's going on. I do, not close, but a little bit closer. And he does the same thing, right? He's on the other side, and then he cuts at the last minute across the wake. He heads right for this, this jet boat, and at the last minute he turns and just sprays them with water, which we thought was just very cool. And... Uh, and, you know, he sort of pumps his fist. We were sure they were from Iowa. We hated people from Iowa for no, no real reason. But we thought that was great. And then uh, we went a little bit further down into the cove, and then, and then he drops. And so it's at that point, as we're turning the boat around to, to go back and pick up uh, Pat, that we realize this jet boat is coming towards us. And we go, oh, no. So we hurry up and we get Pat in the, in the, in the boat. And this boat is very close to us, and they're yelling at us. And uh, Pat's yelling back, you know, oh, what's the matter? You get a little wet, you know, and he's, you know, he's, you know, he's looking at us for affirmation. And then the, the guy in this, that's driving this boat, I don't really understand how jet boats work, but he, he spun it around, and then he tilted the engine, and he guns it. And then the net effect is there's just this wall of water that comes onto us, right? And it doesn't, it's not just for a second. It's like 
for 10 seconds. He just stays there. And we're just, if Pat splashed them with a gallon of water, we got a hundredfold back, right? We're sopped. All our clothes in the boat are sopped. The towels are soaking. There's water. I mean, it was just like, oh my goodness, freezing cold water. And then they sort of laugh at us and take off. And and Pat's yelling at them, you know, come back and fight, da, 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 da. And I'm laughing. And so then he starts yelling at me, and I go, Pat, they won. I mean, just face it, right? You were a jerk first. You sprayed them. They have a cooler boat. There are girls in that boat, Pat. We're losers over here, and they drenched us. I go, sometimes you just have to face, we got beat. They won. Now let's go home. I'm freezing. So my point is, you have to understand what matters and what doesn't. You have to understand how to keep score. And I'm not obviously talking about water skiing on the Mississippi River. I'm talking about in life. And, And my contention is that a lot of people do not know how to keep score. There's a lot of people who do not understand how God scores the game. Now, we're in this series out of Luke, chapters 9 and 10. And I have been arguing the point that not only did Jesus come to teach, and not only did he come to be an example, and not only did he come to die in our place, but Jesus also came to launch a movement, right? A revolution to bring the moral code, the ethic, the values of the kingdom of God to earth and to see that spread, right? Grace and love and forgiveness and kindness, to see that move out throughout the earth. We cannot bring off, we cannot fully realize God's vision for the kingdom until Christ returns. But we have been charged and encouraged to be about his work, to advance this revolution. And what I want uh, to be sure you understand is that there are rewards for doing this. And in fact, uh, we have an opportunity to use our lives in ways that um, store up treasures in heaven. And it's important that we understand what God is looking for and how he keeps track. So, if you have your Bibles, we're going to work through this passage in Luke chapter 9. Beginning with verse 46, it's already been read for you. I'm just going to work through this uh, a verse at a time. An argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. Okay, so there are some who think that, that this argument uh, in, is, is among the twelve and that they're including Jesus in that and that they're debating as to, in the end, who the ultimate greatest person will be. I think that's wrong. Uh, I think that the disciples are clueless, but they're not that clueless. They are wondering who's going to get second place, right? I mean, in this chapter, Jesus is already, he's, he's supernaturally multiplied food. He's been declared to be God. He's, he, he has claimed the title Son of Man. He's been transfigured and his glory has been revealed. Uh, he's, you know... <laughs> It's clear. He just healed someone that they couldn't heal, right? He just battled even in a way that they had failed. They get that they're not going to be as great as Jesus. They're hoping that Jesus is going to do what what the first century Jews wanted the Savior to do, and that is to, to be a political military leader 
And they're hoping that when he comes in power, when he gets his own you know, cabinet and he sets things in place, that he'll choose one of them to be vice president or secretary of state or something. That, that's what they're jockeying for. So it's likely that what had happened is that one of the three, Peter, James, or John, who went further up the mountain and saw Jesus in his glory in that transfiguration, they had copped some sort of attitude and Perhaps one of them had said to one of the others, you know, wow, it was unbelievable. I so wish you could have been there. But, you know, I guess you just weren't really, maybe you weren't ready. He didn't invite you. I don't know. But, you know, you can imagine the uh, I'm mom's favorite sort of attitude that, the, that one of them had taken. And so this, is, this has launched this discussion. And it's likely that, that whenever you have a pecking order getting established, You've actually got two fights going on. One, who's going to be first, right? When the athletic team is being formed, there's the question, who's going to be the captain? Who, who are the starters going to be, right? Who's going to be the star? But then there's also this competition to see who's going to be last, who's going to get cut. So there's, there's sort of a couple different competitions going on. Uh, years ago, we... Um, we agreed to watch our neighbor's puppy for a, a couple weeks while they went on vacation. It was a chocolate lab, great dog. But uh, it became obvious within about uh, 12 hours that the puppy was uh, aware of the fact that, that he or, or she was not going to be first, right? That there was a pecking order and she was not first. As a matter of fact, she wasn't second, third, or fourth. But she was not going to be last. And so our, our youngest son, who was about this tall at the time, I mean, this dog just went after him, right? And it was just obvious. It was so blatantly obvious that we'd be playing a game and everybody would be playing with the dog. And as soon as, as Jason would try and get involved, uh, Lily would just growl at him. Like, you are a, you're the loser. You're the chump. I'm not going to play with you. And uh, so there's just always these battles going on the pecking order getting established. And so this argument is taking place among the disciples. Jesus, verse 47, Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and had him stand before him. And remember, I mentioned this last week. Jesus changes our view on children, changes the way we understand them. They, don't, they didn't have perceived value because they couldn't produce, right? They couldn't pull their weight. And so they were looked down upon. But he takes this child, has, it, has uh, the child stand beside him. Then he said to them, Whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me, which would be God the Father. God the Father sent the Son. For he who is the least among you, he is the greatest. Now I want you to, I want you to notice Three things here. First of all, Jesus is not speaking against greatness. He's simply suggesting that they don't understand what greatness looks like. That they don't know how to keep score. He's not speaking out against ambition. He is simply saying that their ambition is misdirected. That they fundamentally don't understand what it is that Jesus or that God the Father values. Number two, please note that the greatness that he is valuing has real value. 
today we live in a culture which is a little bit screwy, and so now there is a whole host of people who are famous for being famous. Right? They're known for being known, but that's essentially it. They haven't done anything. Um, I, uh, I feel some uh, burden to stay reasonably current with the events that are going on around the world. Uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon said that when you preach, you should have the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other hand. And in recent years, that's a problem because we stopped getting the newspaper because it didn't resemble anything like a newspaper that I was looking to read. Big pictures, you know, audacious headlines and short articles. And so we don't get the newspaper anymore. And so I am, I am frequently needing to check in with uh, my, my kids for counsel about who these people are. And, and I'll say, who is such and such, and what are they famous for? What did they do? And increasingly what I keep hearing is, oh, they didn't really do anything. They're just famous, right? They're just perceived to be famous. So let's just note, that's not what Jesus is talking about here. Right? He's talking about people who are great because they're serving. And then... Uh, point three, please understand that um, it's not wrong to do things that are in our own best interest. So, so we read through this, we read through the New Testament. We, we see what Jesus is doing. And there is this radical call, right, to, to serve, to go to the end of the line, to put the needs of others ahead of your own, to die to self, to pick up your cross and follow Jesus. And all of those things can feel like we're being asked to act against our own best interest. That's never the case. God never asks us to do anything that is ultimately against our best interest. We just don't understand what our best interest is. We just don't understand how God keeps score. Jesus said... Don't store up treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. But he goes on after that to say, instead, store up your treasure in heaven where moth and rust cannot destroy and thieves cannot break in and steal. Right? It's not don't do something in your own best interest. It's do something that's in your eternal interest. Do something that has real value, not fleeting value. Jesus doesn't speak against ambition. So we read on, verse um, 49. He who is least among you, he is the greatest. Verse 49. Master, said John, we saw a man driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he is not one of us. So I've mentioned this from time to time. This was drilled into my head by, uh, by one of my mentors, that the church in particular, among organizations, can make the mistake of making big things small and small things big, right? It can get all excited about the wrong thing and miss the big thing. And, and that's really what we've got uh, going on here. So apparently, and we see more about this in Acts, uh, in the book of Acts, that there are people following Jesus. It's, again, it's two and a half years into his ministry. Now, there's people following Jesus other than the disciples, 
And somewhere there are people who are going toe-to-toe with evil in Christ's name. But they're not with the disciples. And so John, who undoubtedly is just jealous. Remember, he just failed his wrestling match with evil. The last, the last event. right? No one, could, no one could help this boy. And so they had to, the father had to take the boy to Jesus. And Jesus was miffed at his disciples. right? How long do I have to be with you for you to get this? What's going on? And so John's just had his hand slapped. And so undoubtedly, he goes to Jesus saying, um, we heard these people who were out here doing this in your name, but they, they're not one of us. They're, they're not a member of this church, right? They didn't go to our seminary. They, 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 she didn't check the right box. And so we shut them down. And, and no doubt, John thinks Jesus is going to say, good job, John. But instead, Jesus is exactly the opposite, right? He said, come on. Right? Don't go there, John. Do not stop him, for whoever is not against you is for you. Thirty plus years ago, I I remember reading about an event that happened uh, at the White House. So um, we had had a a Navy jet uh, that was flying over Syria on some sort of mission, and it was shot down. One of the pilots was killed, and another one was taken prisoner. And he had been a prisoner for almost a year now. And Jesse Jackson announced that he was going to Syria to to, uh, argue for the release of this prisoner. And the the Reagan administration uh, was not in favor of this, and they they did not help Jackson in his mission. And he's successful. Jackson goes over there, and he's successful. And so his age, the age wake up Reagan, and they, and they say, we've got a crisis, we've got a crisis. So Reagan comes, gets dressed, comes down, and uh, sits down, and they go, uh, Jackson is coming back to the United States with the hostage. He was successful getting the hostage released. And Reagan says, okay, and? And they go, well, that's the crisis. And he said, what do you mean that's the crisis? The hostage is freed? <laughs> that's a good thing. And they go, yeah, but, 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 but it's, it's not our script. It's, we're not controlling the narrative, right? They did it. We didn't support them. He goes, the hostage is freed. We celebrate this. Invite them to the White House. Let's congratulate them on what they did, right? Somebody thinking, let's keep big things big and make small things small. And so Jesus argues in a way that, that really speaks against the kind of selfishness that, that, that can be in, in our heart. I mean, certainly is in my heart. There are times when I, I find my immediate response to good news for somebody that I love is a little bit of jealousy. Like, oh man, I wish that didn't happen to them. And I think, really? Really? Why in the world would I not be nothing but thrilled for the good that is happening to them? We have that selfishness that can easily get in the way And it can be a problem. But here's what I want to make clear. That doesn't mean that ambition is wrong. So, a a number of years ago, I I gave a talk on ambition at Men's Fraternity. And and I, I started by saying this. So, this is an equation I came up with. Uh... 
LR stands for life results equals IQ plus EQ, so our intelligence quotient and our emotional quotient, times opportunity, times ambition, times our starting point. So basically it's saying that uh, how far we get, where we end up, is a product of our IQ and our EQ, which I would argue we don't really control. Right? I mean, this is sort of, you know, we don't, we don't control the first couple years of our life when these things are so, um, so ultimately determined. We don't control whether uh, we're born into the family of Bill and Melinda Gates or we're born into the home of a, of a single mom living in a slum in Brazil. Right? So we don't control all these things. IQ and EQ we don't control. Opportunity we don't control. I've been very clear, right? I, I was born on third base, as were many of you. And there's a big difference between being born on third base and hitting a triple. Some people are born with two strikes against them. If they end up on third base, that's a whole lot different than me ending up on third base. And then, ambition, that's the A. And, and the big thing is, this is what we do control. Right? This mix of our energy and our drive and the way we deploy it, the things that we decide to spend our time going after, we do control uh, our ambition. And, and so I, I started with this, this equation, and, and I developed it because I, want, I wanted to make it clear. Ambition often gets a bad rap. Now, uh, we're all ambitious at some level, and frequently that's selfishly ambitious. We don't have to teach a child to say mine or to grab things or to look out for their own interests and wants. That happens without them being coached. And many people never completely grow out of that. There's this desire for newer, faster, bigger, flashier, right? More, 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 me, me, me. We've got that We've got that voice that, that can sing inside of us. Um, so there is, a, there is a side of ambition that is selfish and is clearly wrong. However, there's a whole book of the Bible which is dedicated, in, at least in part, to saying a lack of ambition is a bad thing. The book of Proverbs you know, contrasts the person that is motivated with the lazy, with the sluggard, with, with the one that, that, that has no manifestation of a desire to use the gifts and abilities that they've been given to discipline themselves, to push on, to be the best that they can be. So the book of Proverbs makes it clear that, that, that ambition in and of itself is not a, a bad thing. And as a matter of fact, I've shared this, this equation several times as well. And this basically says high goals, so this is somebody with ambition. So high goals tends to lead to high achievement. You might fail, but generally, generally we move in the direction of the things that we're going after. We may not get there, but we get better at that. So if you've got a lot of goals, if you're motivated, if you're ambitious, you tend to achieve more. Achievement, high achievement leads to high self-esteem, which leads to even higher goals. 
which can lead to even higher achievement, which can lead to higher self-esteem. This is not a flawless diagram. There's issues with this. But, but we also see this working in reverse, and that is that low goals, no ambition, leads to low achievement, which can lead to sort of depression and low self-esteem, which we, we've seen, friends, maybe it's happened to you. You just get caught in the downward spiral. And somebody has to come grab you by the shoulders and shake you and say, enough already, right? You're better than you're thinking right now. You've been set back. You've had some rough spots, but you can do this. So there, there are things to celebrate about ambition. However, our ambition is frequently misdirected. We get excited about things that don't ultimately matter in light of eternity, that aren't going to put, give us points in the game that we truly want to win. In Luke 9, the, the disciples are excited about being great. It's vanity. That's, that's what they're after. Vanity and power, and Jesus rebukes them for it. And additionally, we can see... We can see the problem with this kind of selfish ambition on every page of the Bible. I mean, we go back to Genesis chapter 3. It's this kind of selfish ambition that, that leads to the, to the first sin, that leads to the, to the whole fall. And later in Genesis chapter 11, just a few pages further up, we, we've got the, the Tower of Babel where the whole collective community is heading down the wrong path. Let us build a tower. We will make a name for ourselves. People will say we're great, right? And God scatters them and confuses the language. So so our ambition can often be misdirected. However, we need to hear that ambition itself is not wrong. Some of you need to hear that You are winning in the wrong game. And it's possible to lose by winning, ultimately. Others of you need to hear, there's nothing wrong with ambition. God doesn't call us to just keep our heads down. right? We are called to be part of a revolution that is going to help change the world. We're called to be good stewards of the gifts and abilities that we've been given, and we will be held accountable for what we do with what we've been given. In some way that God, who is all-knowing, is going to be able to assess, our life will be assessed. And those to whom much has been given, much is expected. Those who were born on third base are expected to score. Those who were born with two strikes against them, not so much. So, Jesus is not speaking against ambition. He's speaking against a lack of godly ambition. Now, I, I could talk on this topic for some period of time because I always struggle with ambition. When I was first in ministry, I was very, uh, I was very conflicted. I was very ambitious, but very conflicted about my ambition. I couldn't tell if it was... Couldn't, I couldn't quite ever get my motivation to be pure. And it, it eventually put me into a state of paralysis for a couple of years where I wouldn't do anything if I didn't feel like my motives were pure. And I stopped leading the ministry I was with in the right direction because I was just paralyzed by going, my motivations for doing this are not pure. And eventually somebody came around and said, duh, 
Your motivations are never going to be pure, right? We're broken. We're flawed. So, so you still have to do the right thing. <laughs> you gotta, you got to do what we're called to do, even as you wrestle with unpacking your own motivation and confess that which is selfish. So I had to think about ambition for that reason. And I also had to think about ambition because I pastored a church in an area where there's lots of ambition. Some of you are soaked in it. And so trying to think, okay, this is not, a, this is not an altogether bad thing. There's lots of upsides to that. But we have to understand that we can get ahead in the wrong areas. And, and we've got to understand how God keeps score. Again, there's more than I can, there's more here um, that I could say. We're also called, 1 Timothy 6 talks about uh, contentment with godliness, right? So it's not just unchecked ambition that we're after. There's a, there's a contentment uh, that we've been called to. But, but we're also called, right, and this is part of what should fuel this revolution. We are called to a holy discontent with a world that's broken, where people are oppressed, where kids are starving, right? Where people don't have fresh water to drink, where, where, where all kinds of bad things are happening. Sex trafficking is going on. Those things should infuriate us, and we should set out ambitiously to change them. So, once again, ambition is not wrong. The problem we have is that our ambition is often misdirected. So some of you need to hear that you are excelling in ways that won't ultimately matter. And others need to hear that you've got to find the gas pedal. right? Because you've been, you've been content to not be ambitious. Because ambition is wrong. No, it just needs to be directed to the things that we have called to be about. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we do desire to see your will done on earth as it is in heaven. We desire to see a kingdom where, where Christ is exalted and where, where people are cared for, where there is love and grace and mercy, where that extends in uh, every direction. And so we pray to that end. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for... Uh, for the teaching of Christ, which is often surprising. And I pray for myself, as I pray for others, that, uh, that we can channel our ambition in ways that please you. And we can, we can develop the, the holy discontent with the things that are wrong and unjust, uh, even, as we, even as we cultivate a contentment with your goodness and your grace, we can, be, um, we can be about getting ahead in the ways that will matter. We can store up our treasure in heaven where, uh, where it will last and not on earth. So give us wisdom to see all of that, uh, to see ourselves a little bit more clearly. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, it is always uh, critical uh, in a message that talks about uh, doing more giving more, pushing yourself harder. It's always uh, critical that I, I double back and say, okay, I want to be sure you, you understand the way this works because uh, 
It does not work as much as it, I just might have made it sound like this is what happened. It does not work to say faith plus good works equals salvation. Okay? This, is, this, is, this is religion, right? If I believe and if I do enough good things, God will love me and God will care for me. This is not the way it works. The way it works is that faith, true saving faith, justification comes by faith alone. Right? Salvation is by grace through faith, not of ourselves, not as a result of works that anyone should boast. Faith should lead to salvation plus good works. Okay? The good works are there. They just don't merit God's favor. God doesn't love you or love me because we're lovable or because we're good. The great news of the gospel is, in spite of who we are, in spite of how corrupt we are, in spite of our, of our misdirected ambition, God loves us because God is love. He's the, the hero here, not us. In spite of who we are, we can uh, be redeemed, born again, adopted into the family of God. And so we come to this table to reaffirm that, to celebrate that, to acknowledge again that everything hinges around the death of Jesus Christ. So uh, I want to invite those that are serving the communion elements to come forward. Uh, as they do, I will remind you of a couple things. First of all, this is an open communion table. You do not need to be a member of this local congregation in order uh, to participate. However, you do need to be a Christ follower, and we, we treat this as a, as a sacred uh, activity. Additionally, I'm going to ask you to take both the bread and the cup, and then to hold those, I will lead us as we collectively come to this table. So, let me pray for us. Father, uh, we thank you for the gift of your Son, for loving us that much, for knowing us and loving us. We thank you for um, a, a redemption that doesn't hinge on us, that you did everything that needed to be done. And so we thank you for that and praise you for that. And Lord Jesus, we thank you and praise you for accepting the assignment given to you by the Father and, um, and yielding your life, living a perfect life and then taking on our sin and paying the penalty for our debt. And Spirit of God, we pray, meet with us now as we, um, as we prayerfully consider and remember again Uh, the death of the Son of God on the cross on our behalf. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.